I saw it as connecting all the movements for justice mm-hmm. uh, in the city and around the country. Because any time that the people stand up and fight back for justice, the state and the police are there to put them down. Yeah, that's no, true. Welcome to Fight Back Radio, a production of FightBackNews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggle. I'm your host, Richard Berg, and today I'd like to start out by wishing everybody a very happy May Day 2023. This is our May Day edition uh, issue, um, which celebrates uh, International Workers' Day, which is celebrated everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially this, uh, this uh, um, particular mm-hmm. episode marks our one-year anniversary of, being, uh, of, of having Fight Back Radio. So I want to thank everybody. Uh, those of you who are with us from the start and those of you who joined us partway through, um, we have over uh, 1,000 uh, subscribers and followers right now. And uh, we've had uh, uh, you know, tw- well over 25,000 people have uh, listened to an episode or more. And so we thank you all for that. And uh, for Mady, I would recommend to each of you to send out uh, to one of your friends uh, this episode or another one and encourage them to be a follower or a, a person who uh, uh, um, subscribes to Fight Back Radio because we, we, we appreciate your support. Um, International Workers' Day, as many of you know, is, is a holiday that started here in the United States um, in 1886 in the fight for the eight-hour day. And uh, we, right from you know the start at Fight Back Radio, it was our second episode. We had uh, uh, Larry Spivak on from the Illinois Labor History Society. And he told the whole story of Haymarket and of uh, May Day and how it all got started. And I would encourage people that are interested in labor history um, to, to check that out, to go back and look at it. I mean, this is our working class history. This is something that uh, um, you should know about. Uh, and, uh, you know, then, you know, for a long time, even though this is an international holiday that, you know, is celebrated, there's huge marches uh, uh, in many countries around the world where people mm-hmm. bring together their protests. Um, here in the United States, it really you know, was a, became a dormant thing. It was something that was suppressed until uh, 2006 yeah. when the immigrants came forward and, and, uh, in, in reaction to a, a bill by uh, Senator Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, mm-hmm. which would you know, threaten to deport all immigrants and to uh, make it a criminal act uh, to support immigrants in any way. And so uh, we had the mega marches then. And ever since then, uh, uh, May Day and International Workers' Day has been tied to the fight for immigrant rights. And it was the immigrants who understood. People from other countries knew that May 1st was a day of protest. And so they chose that day, not by accident, not by happen chance, but, but for real. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's appropriate today that uh, I have as my guest, uh, Angel Naranjo, um, who is a, a student at Little Village uh, High School and a member, a founding member of the Fight Back organization mm-hmm. there um, yeah. that fights for justice um in uh here in chicago at little village and, and we're going to be talking about a a trip that uh, uh angel just made to the border mm-hmm. of uh, mexico and the united states uh, but before we get into that um i want to just ask you uh, angel since uh you know you come from an immigrant family yeah, for sure. um what what do you think of mayday what's yeah. what's your take on, yeah. on on may 1st international workers day yeah well thank you richard for providing me the opportunity to talk about it uh to me may day the first time i want to say actually the first time I ever celebrated May Day was last year in 2022. So about to be exactly a year, the first time I ever celebrated it. Oh my gosh. Um, and it was absolutely amazing. I didn't even know it existed, to be completely honest with you, before then. Um, but once I learned about the history and learned about the mass movement of immigrants that brought it back to the United States, that revitalized the movement, it became like a very personal thing. And to me, May Day is... First of all, it's an international working class holiday. And so that in itself makes it extremely important. But it's also a day for us to reaffirm our commitment to the struggle, um, to the struggle, to the fight of workers, for justice, for an end to discrimination and exploitation, and specifically to the struggle of oppressed nationality peoples in the United States and around the world for freedom. Oh, that's wonderful. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's... uh, um I don't think anybody could have said it better. That's that's very good. Thank you. Um, I want to ask also though. Let's let's dig mm-hmm. into it a little bit here. Uh, um, you know, you're a high school student, uh, uh, and uh, you know, 
uh, so you're a new activist, mm-hmm. and uh, you know how, how did you get how did you get involved in yeah. all this stuff? I mean, uh, it's not you know most people that are 18 years old aren't you know being interviewed on Fight Back Radio. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, how, what, what was your entrance into uh, activism? Yeah, it's, I think it's truly amazing. You know, looking back sometimes because it's hard to even imagine that it really happened you know it's a process that's what i'm trying to say um how i got involved in the movement but i'd say it started around 2020 when the george floyd rebellion was taking shape and sweeping the cities across the united states um at the time i was a freshman in high school at walter payton college prep um and seeing this um the whole like city shut down the world kind of shut down because of covid um, I didn't think it was a big deal, you know, like I thought it'd be over in like a week or two, you know, mm-hmm. that's what we were told. At Many least. of us did. Yeah. Yeah. And then next thing you know, it felt like the world was flipped upside down. And so after my freshman year of high school and my sophomore year, um, I decided, you know what? Um, I was feeling really isolated, kind of alienated in my community. Um, I felt like I didn't have a community at the high school I was going to. And so I was like, I'm going to go back home. And this was after the George Floyd Rebellion already, which I was seeing happen. And I was questioning a lot of things around me, you know, like, what does this country really stand for? That kind of thing. So you, go by going back home, you meant back to your neighborhood. Yeah. Because uh, Walter Payton's in a different neighborhood than yeah. from where you live. It was like an hour on the train yeah. to get there and an hour and a half to go back home. But anyways, um, and so when I came back to Little Village Londo High School, the community neighborhood school that from where I live in, I grew up in Little Village, La Vita. Um, I picked Social Justice High School out of the four schools in that building because there's four schools in there. Um, and partly because they didn't have a uniform, but also because at the time I was already um, interested in what social justice was or social justice meant as a result of the movement. And junior year, fast forward to junior year, um, me and my friends are like, hey, let's start a social justice club at our school because this is what our school is named after. Yep. Right. And um, shout out those two friends. I'm going to tell them about this, Leila and Carlos. <laughs> All uh, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was talking with them and we formed the Social Justice Club. I started getting involved in the marches organized by the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. And that Social Justice Club became Little Village Londo High School. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That, 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 that's exciting. Yeah. So that, that's where the fight back, uh, yes, Little Village exactly. Londo High School fight back yeah. comes from. So um, uh, I want to circle back to this before we end the interview, but uh, but but you just took a trip to mm-hmm. uh, uh, to the border, uh, um, and you were in California most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us uh, what 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 was this uh, what was this trip? Who sponsored it? Why, oh, for sure. why did you go? What was what's yeah. going on with that? Yeah, for sure. So the trip was first of all organized by the Legalization for All Network, um, which is a nationwide network of people fighting for legalization for all undocumented immigrants, which is over 12 million in the country right now. And in the city, the organizations that really figured out the logistics of it were members of Centro CSO, Central Community Service Organization. Yes. And the LA Catholic worker who provided us housing. Um, but the overall purpose of the trip was to denounce and expose and give light to the injustices, the inhumane treatment of immigrants at the border, at the hands of the United States government. And so we had people from Minnesota, from San Jose, from Chicago, myself, mm-hmm. um, all come to this trip at the border. And we learned a lot. It took a course over the over five days. And I couldn't stay the whole time, but it was an eye-opening and life-changing experience. Well, let, let's dig into it a little bit. And, and for our listeners, we'll put in mm-hmm. uh, our, our show notes uh, the contact information for legalization for all. So if you want to know more about them, you can you can get in contact. But uh, um, so mm-hmm. you 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 first traveled to uh, Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. your first day was in Los Angeles. Why don't you walk us in? So you okay? Here you are, you know, a Chicago guy, you know, a high school student from Chicago in LA. Mm-hmm. What what happened that first day? Yeah, so on the first day, um, <laughs> my flight was delayed because there was a storm going. <laughs> there was a storm going out of Chicago, so I actually didn't leave the airport until like eleven thirty, and I got there like three or two a.m. LA time. Um, but I was picked up by one of the organizers in CSO, um, very dope person named Avery, awesome, uh, and they drove me over. Um, and later I learned that the delegates from minnesota and from other places 
got their flights canceled or delayed. And so it was really just me and another delegate from San Jose, which is part of the um, Silicon Valley Unemployment Committee. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they're awesome. They're doing work over there. And so it was just me and this this delegate, my friend named Jersey. Um, and we got a personal tour by the co-founder of the Brown Berets there, um, Carlos Montes. Carlos Montes, yes, <laughs> yeah. who's been on Fight Back <laughs> yeah, Radio before. Exactly. So. And so that was awesome, you know, um, getting to meet him in person. And he just gave us a personal tour of East L.A. and more specifically Boyle Heights, um, where the Chicano movement in East L.A. really blossomed and grew out of. And so, yeah, um, we took a tour of the Museum of Social Justice La Plaza de Cultura y Artes, and we saw a load of murals in the neighborhood. And it was really beautiful seeing how the community really came together and expressed themselves in this way. So th- this is an important thing, uh, you, mm-hmm. know, in, you know, in Los Angeles, Southern California, Mexico for that matter as well, uh, um, as an expression of art, but also the struggle, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes. so, so people tell the story of the, the, their struggles for justice and for equal rights and, and, and economic rights uh, through murals often. Yeah. So can you, can you talk, were there any murals that struck you or what, what kinds of things were being said in these murals? No, for sure. Um, Almost all the murals struck me. I want to say that right away. Uh, Because it's like you mentioned, you know, there's that um, misery that the people, the misery and depression that they're facing. But there's also like the revolutionary side of it. Or like the, we're we're not taking this side of it, you know. That we're going to fight back and express ourselves. And we're going to take ownership of who we are, you know. And declare that we deserve our liberation, our freedom. And we have a right to determine our own destinies. And so I saw that in almost every mural that I passed by or that we were showed. Um, One that really stuck out to me was actually painted on the back of this public housing unit. Um, And it was a picture of Che Guevara um, pointing at the person viewing it. And at at the side of him, it says, in all caps, we are not a minority. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really like that one that really stood out to me no that, that's incredible yeah and it's yeah and it's it's been a, a story down there too all mm-hmm. the, the different murals that have uh um uh, you know captured people's imagination mm-hmm. um you mentioned the museums too it's not mm-hmm. it's not you know you, tourists they go to los angeles and you know, hey come to the museum is usually not the first thing yeah. what, what, what museums did uh did uh, mm-hmm. Carlos take you to, and what was the purpose of that? Yeah, for sure. So there was two main museums that I'm thinking of right now. One was the Museum of Social Justice, which was actually like underground, um, and it was really awesome. It was open to the public. It was free. It was you mean underground around. being not, uh, yeah, uh, not like secret, but you mean it, it was, it was yes. below the surface. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I had to clarify that, but that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was yeah, um, and. In this museum, they basically showcased a lot of the history that isn't taught in the public schools over there. Um, and I actually learned that from Jersey, which lives not that far away from East LA. And mm-hmm. they told us that in high school or in elementary, they were never taught about any of the things that are being shown in the museum. And that's because the museum showed a lot of, uh, of the massacres that took place in LA. Um, deportations, mass deportations of people who lived there, as well as immigrants, but just inhumane and just... And um, they showcased the community fighting back, you know, and organizing themselves. Um, there was rallies that took place in that area called La Plaza mm-hmm. um, that were organized by community members, native-born people in the community, and also socialist organizations at the time. This must have been like the 1930s or the 1940s. And they had mass rallies, May Day rallies, and marches. Um, wow. black, man, you black and white pictures holding banners that say um, socialism means justice, liberty, freedom, or things like we support the Soviet Union. Wow. You know, and, and this is like the community, you know, wow. this is 1930s, 1940s. And you look at the pictures at who are in these images and it's black people, it's brown people, it's white people. And you, they look like they're spanning all age groups. Wow. You know? and, so it's and very diverse. Exactly. And they're, and they're here to organize their community and demand justice, you know. Um, there was a lot of murals, not murals. So the images. museum showed that people were, uh, you know, clearly they were victims of oppression mm-hmm. 
and violence, but they they weren't simply victims. These are people that were fighting back, exactly. that were organizing yeah. and, and struggling for a, a better day for themselves mm-hmm. and their families. They were sick and tired of being sick and tired, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, um, they were raising all sorts of demands. But then it fast forwards to the present day, mm-hmm. and there was pictures in color of the 2006 mass marches that took place in East L.A. as well, which was really powerful to see. Which on May Day, which we're celebrating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're celebrating today. And so, yeah, that was one of the museums. Um, and the other one that Carlos took us to was called La Plaza de Cultura y Arte, which has a, an entire section um, devoted to tracing the history of the Southwest um, of the Chicano Nation from the, from the 1840s all the way to the 1960s present day. You know, there was a section in there called Hostile Terrain, which was dedicated to documenting the experiences of undocumented people and the uh, treacherous conditions that they have to face crossing the border in the search of a better life, you know? Um, and at the end of that exhibit, like I said, mm-hmm. it goes all, spans all the way to the 1960s. There's actually an uh, area that talked about the Brown Berets and the uh, um, East LA walkouts and the Chicano movement in the 60s. And there was a quote, by Carlos Montes. Oh, so, so your <laughs> you know, tour guide is yeah, quoted in the exactly. museum. <laughs> and, and then it, it was funny because uh, under the quote, there was like a picture of this high school student. Um, it was kind of implying that that's the person who was saying the quote, but it was not Carlos. <laughs> and Carlos was like, that's not me. <laughs> He's like, you gotta put me out here. But I, I want to say the quote. Um, I don't know word for word, but the essence of it was this. Um, Carlos was talking about you know, we're taught about the American dream, you know, listen to the teachers, read all these books, and you can make it or do whatever you want. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, the reality that I'm seeing here is different from what you're saying. There's something going on here. Wow. And then Carlos was there, right? And so I turned to Carlos and I'm like, hey, Carlos, what's that thing you were talking about that's going on here? And he looked at me, he was like, you know, uh, capitalist imperialist depression <laughs> and, and the tour guide was there too she was like thank you for going easy on me <laughs> yeah so that was dope. well that's yeah. a that's a funny one yeah. so it sounds like your time in los angeles mm-hmm. was a good preparation for what as you headed you know further south mm-hmm. in, in california and so the the next day you went to san diego am i right yeah yeah so, so could you tell us a little bit about what what the what the tour did uh, in San Diego? Yeah, for sure. So the first day we spent in East LA, Boyle Heights. You know, like I said, most of the people weren't there yet, so we were just really getting a tour. But after the um, the entire group came, you know, second day they got their flights. They were very determined to make it, so I really appreciate them for that. Um, and we were kind of we kind of all went to San Diego as one group, but we're split into two. And I don't have my passport yet. I didn't get it in time, and so I wasn't able to. Um, cross the border, but that's what we were there for. We were heading to the border. One group was going to cross over to the Tijuana side of the border. And me, I stayed on the San Diego side. But before we left, we all got a tour of Chicano Park in Vario Logan, or Logan Heights, what they call over there, the neighborhood in San Diego. And it was absolutely beautiful, you know. Same feeling as what was going on in East LA. You know, you see the oppression and the misery that people are facing, but also how they're coming together and fighting back against that oppression. You know, so how are they doing that? Tell, yeah. t- tell me about, yeah, no. about the park. What of course, is that? of course. So um, it's actually funny that we're recording this today because yesterday, April twenty second, was the fifty um, third anniversary of Chicano Park. Oh Chicano, my Chicano Park Day. Oh my um, gosh! And April twenty second, nineteen seventy, marked the day that the community of Logan Heights and other neighbor neighboring Chicano communities came together to occupy the space that is now known as Chicano Park. Because originally, the city wanted to turn it into like a dumping site, you know. But the community wanted to be a park. And one day, um, I forgot the exact name of the student, but there was a Brown Beret college student who was walking past the area and saw bulldozers in the spot. And so he asked one of the workers, hey, uh, are y'all building a park here? And he looked at him, he was like, no, we're not building a park here. And when he saw what was going on, he began to run to the college campus. And mind you, this is the 1970s, right? Before phones, social media, all that technology. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so um, on the, along the way to the college campus, he's telling everyone he sees on the streets about what's going on in that spot. And within a few hours, over 300 people were gathered 
in this location with oh the picks God. and the shovels. And they occupied the space for 12 days. And wow. Be- because of that struggle, they won. And that place is now known 53 years later as Chicano Park. Oh, my gosh. That, that's fabulous. That's, that's quite a story. Yeah, wow. Beautiful. So uh, um, so you, you went to Chicano Park. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, what, what, what other kinds of things happened while you were there? What did you see? What, what does Chicano Park look like then, sure. right now? Yeah, so a lot of greenery. But the most like thing that stood out to me was that the fact that it's under like a highway. Um, so all the pillars that hold up the highway, the columns are covered in murals in art the murals that we're talking about you know so it's going back to the same thing of this exactly. telling this, the history exactly. of the struggle through murals yes exactly and it was absolutely amazing like you can stare at these for hours and hours and keep noticing new things in the murals and the tour guide who was telling us about Chicano Park actually told us that the murals did that very intentionally because they knew that the youth of the community weren't really able to get a college education and so they brought that education out into the streets in a popular form through mm-hmm. art so that people can still learn their own history in, in the park. Yeah, just no, that's, that makes sense. The original muralists, I know, uh, were conscious of that, too. They mm-hmm. actually studied um, uh, the, 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 the murals of the Catholic Church mm-hmm. because um, they were because uh, most of the peasants back in uh, feudal days were, were illiterate. And so it was the way of, of telling the story. Uh, that they wanted to tell, which was you know not the story of the struggle, but the story of Catholicism, mm-hmm. was through murals. Yes. And so, like Diego Rivera and uh, you know Siqueiros Orozco, mm. these Mexican muralists studied the the Catholic Church first, and then yes. they they went off and did the their, their brilliant work. Yeah. yeah. So it is good. I, I like that you mentioned that because I should have talked about it. But when we were on the in uh, East LA, uh, Carlos also took us to this spot that was kind of hidden. Um, we took an elevator to get up to the top of the of the building the roof mm-hmm. um but you look in a distance and there's this faded piece of art and he told us this is an art made by Sequeiros. oh wow and it depicted like an uh a native uh american crucified with a bald eagle atop his head and revolutionaries in the distance pointing at it with their rifles oh my gosh and it was covered up by the city that's you incredible, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. I know he was um, uh, deported from the United States, mm-hmm. deported from Mexico. I think he was deported from Argentina and Uruguay as well. I think mm. it's five countries. I'm not sure of this, but uh, I would yeah. uh, recommend to our Fight Back Radio listeners to, if you're interested in murals, uh, uh, you know, to Mexican murals, uh, um, to check out Siqueiros. Uh, There's a book in English by Philip Stein that maybe we can put that in the show notes too awesome. that I would recommend. Um, but uh, yes, that's it's yeah. an important part of the history and, and the, the struggle. Mm-hmm. So, um, so okay. So let me ask you. So you so you were in San Diego, and then you guys split up, uh, um, and some went to uh, uh, to Mexico uh, uh, to the other side of the border, and, and you see so had two delegate. You know, your delegation split in half. So you stayed. Uh, in the San Diego side, what you know, your your, uh, your your you know the other delegates. What what things did they see? What kinds of uh, mm-hmm. things? Uh, um, what did you hear about that? For sure. So yeah, like I mentioned earlier, they were on the Tijuana side, so just on the other side of San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I think is important to mention is that talking to the people in both communities, they mentioned how Tijuana and San Diego is essentially one city or one culture divided by the Trump wall. Wow. You know, one of the youth that we talked to, <clears throat> talk to at Chicano Park in the museum next to it is part of the Asnan Youth Brigade. So we met some of the Chicana youth. Mm-hmm. And they talked about how their family literally goes to have dinner on the weekends. They cross the border over to Tijuana and they just come right back, you know, because they have families such close there, you know, in a community that's so, like, together. Mm-hmm. But it's divided by this wall, you know. And so the that's people who went to Tijuana got to see that firsthand. Um, they visited deported veterans um in the on the tijuana side they visited the casa de luz which is a lgbtq plus collective mm-hmm. they call it collective instead of shelter because it enforces like the um it like echoes the community aspect of it you know mm-hmm. it's a living space that focuses on providing housing access and food to immigrants um like at the border and it was absolutely beautiful they told me they got to actually be nearby friendship park 
which is this place that has historically been used by immigrants on both sides of the border to meet, communicate with each other. They could touch each other, slip gifts to each other, you know, through, at, through Friendship Park. But with the new Trump wall, they're not even going to be able to see each other, you know. So um, these are ways of, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about ways that, you know, the people, uh, you know, through the collective or through the, the Friendship Park, they're mm-hmm. or trying to bring people together. Yes. And, and, and Trump and uh, the United States government uh, does the opposite. Mm-hmm. It, it tries to divide us and keep us apart and keep us, you know, keep, it splits up families. And, yes. But also even, you know, not just families, just people who are, you know, friends or our ability to meet pe- potential friends, you know, mm-hmm. people that you could never, because they can't come across, you know, whatever. They can't uh, go to San Diego and say mm-hmm. hey, what's going on with, you know. Exactly. It was closed during the pandemic and it hasn't been reopened since. There's organizing going on in the community over there in Tijuana to fight for to get it reopened. But that's what this government has been doing, you know, dividing these families, like you mentioned. Um, they learned about why the wall was constructed to 30 feet specifically, which blew my mind. What is, what's the answer? They, I don't they, know. They talked about how the people who were building the wall found out, they calculated the exact height, the minimum height that people need so that when they reach 30 feet, they lose a sense of their direction because of the oxygen levels. Wow. Yeah. So fall, if they fall, they're not going to be able to land safely. And oh at, the, at the bottom of the 30 foot wall, is covered in razor wire so it's a deadly situation oh my god you know yeah and, and they picked their 30 feet because that's the height that people kind of lose their sense of direction you know so you get to see how you got to see how intentional it was you know and just how inhumane it is mm-hmm. the the wall extends even out to the coast and the beach into the water you know they talked about they reported back how um they saw um how people were just on the beach here like it was a regular day and there's this entire wall with barbed wire extending out into the water and that it was added because at one point there was a group of immigrants that swam past and instead of you know trying to figure out okay how can we um provide these people uh a safe way to cross the border you know the, the government just put more barbed wire into the, into the oh, water oh jeez. you know jeez. oh absolutely horrible and um the militarization going on there too you have ice agents border patrol just driving up and down the wall um, you have tower systems built by military contractors. Um, it's you know it, it's it's horrendous, you know. So on the you know okay, so some of the people went to to Mexico. You were in San Diego, but then then you marched. You know, you you took a hike. You think mm-hmm. you told me to the border, um, and that's where you saw some of this kind yeah. of stuff. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, what's uh, um, you know the. The goals, you know, what what do you hope to come, you know, from the, this trip for, you know, the legalization for all people? It's like uh, there's a, um, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about the circumstance about what, you know, leads people to want to immigrate to the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, George Bush would say, you know, they they, they love our freedom, whatever, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and uh, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the reality of, mm-hmm. you know, why you know, what, what pe- you know, some of the people that are, you know, feel that they need to come to the United States, why they would want to do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so when I was hiking to the to the border, uh, I was, like I said, I was on the San Diego side. We were trying to hike near Friendship Park as well. But on the road to get to the border, it was, it became flooded. Like, it was full with water. We weren't going to walk past that. And so we still wanted to see the wall in person. And so we took a stretch of greenery to the side to get to it. And it was... At first, dry and like rugged, but then it became wet and it felt like quicksand at times. So it was like really dangerous. And it kind of gave us just a glimpse of the reality that the immigrants have to face on a consistent basis, mm-hmm. you know, trying to search for a better life. And I don't think it's like George Bush was saying they love our freedom. It's actually a lot, a lot more different. That's the opposite, you know. Um, we actually, I want to bring this up because it connects to what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to leave early. But they, the other delegates told me about how on the fourth day, they were, they had a panel with immigrants' rights organizations in the community and also across the country um, on the struggles going on and how they're all linked together. And the common thread in all of those struggles they found was United States imperialism. Huh. That was the, that was the common link. They talked about how 
there were some people from El Salvador that were on that panel. They talked about the struggles going on there and how the United States government literally props up and funds a right-wing government in Latin American countries like El Salvador. Yep, yep. And the conditions are extremely similar to the United States in the forms of mass incarceration and all these things. And so it makes it so that people living there are in such poverty and devastation that they have to leave their countries. But they're met by a 30-foot wall and border patrol and death. Oh, that's terrible. Oh. So, I mean, a lot of our Fight Back Radio listeners know I, I'm in the labor movement. I've been involved in that for my whole life. And, uh, yeah, I think we saw some of this. It was started out with the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, mm-hmm. and there was a series of, of trade agreements to promote uh, neoliberalism and break down trade. But what it re- really did is broke down, uh, uh, it was geared to break the strength of uh Workers' power, labor unions, etc., and agricultural as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the U.S. corporations were able to exploit at a much higher level. Uh, you know, workers in Mexico and and uh, not just Mexico, name you know anywhere in Central America, mm-hmm. and uh, it led to people coming to the United States because their their old ways of living were being wiped out by these uh, trade agreements. Um, and at the same time, uh, factories and pe- places in the United States where we had good standards of living and strong unions were also being wiped out. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you saw that it was bad for for everyone, except yeah. for the most, except for the people that rule the world, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the imperialists, as you said. So uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, so, uh, you know, for people that, you know, now you were on, on this side of the border, so mm-hmm. people that... Uh, succeed in uh, you know coming to the United States um, and find jobs and whatever um, you know there's a uh, you know so now they found the land of freedom and, and democracy everything's all cool for them or I mean can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about the the history of uh, um, uh, Chicanos and uh, or not just the history the, the present as well and yeah. um, you know, even people that have uh, papers often don't have full equality could mm-hmm. you could you speak a little bit about that no for sure yeah um, I'm reminded of the youth that were uh, part of the delegation um, that they got to meet with like I said I had to dip early but they met some youth from Guatemala who traveled to the United States and they talk about how remember these are some high schoolers you know younger than me a lot of these. Um, these youth and they talk about the reality of having to balance high school you know barely coming to this to this country and working at an extremely young age to provide for their families you know to make sure that there's food on the table yeah these are like 16 year olds yeah you know and um so the the reality is like you talked about it's not just the history but the harsh reality today is that these people are uh they're they're exploited like hell you know, um, they don't have full equality in the form of not not being having like citizenship or even when they do, you know, um, their schools are underfunded. They face police brutality. Um, their families, their parents, they might be undocumented. They're given the worst the bottom, bottom jobs, you know, without the right to a union, you know, or to defend themselves. You know, there's there's so much. It's like an endless list that you can go on and on and on about. Yeah, no, that's right. But the truth is that these people are super exploited, you know, um, and they face a common oppression regardless of whether they be from Central America, they're born in the Southwest, they're Chicanos, or they're coming from Mexico. You know, they all face a common oppression in the Southwest that we call Islam. So um, the legalization for all network, what's... What's the answer to this? What What do you? Uh, mm-hmm. What's the call? I mean, the name sounds like, uh, you know, uh, changing laws or whatever. What What are your thoughts on how to how to deal with this? What are, What kind of demands should we be raising? Yeah, for sure. So legalization for all is basic, you know. Um, but as we've seen in the history of this country, it's been a demand for so long, and it hasn't been granted yet. You know, so that kind of that not kind of it gives you an idea of what this government is really up to what the billionaires who run this country are really up to. And also the demands for immigrants' rights, for workers' rights specifically, um, is something that we're trying to uplift a lot. Um, but legalization for all, you know, is just something that we got to constantly fight for. You know, it, it was seen in the 2006 mass marches in Chicago here 
they had over 500,000 single marches going on into the streets, you know, it really demonstrates the power of the movement. But it's also, uh, it also takes the form of what I think is the strategic alliance, you know, the immigrants' rights forces and organizations need to realize that they have an ally in the labor movement and the labor movement, um, same way. You know, I think that for us to truly achieve these things that we're fighting for, these two forces need to come together. Oh, that's yeah. uh, that's that's very perceptive, uh, and I I hundred percent agree. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems that you know if if you have a united working class, there's so much you can achieve. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, you know the photos you saw at the museum in the in the '30s of the, that diversity, but it's uh, um, you know the other side realizes that too. I mean, it's like uh, Jim Crow. Uh, for uh, you know, for decades and decades, uh, uh, a century, as a matter of fact, you know, kept black and white people divided. Mm-hmm. And if you have one pe- group of people with uh, less rights, it puts it's an anchor on the on the rights, wages, benefits, everything of of the of the other of the, even of the higher group. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with uh, um, you know Chicanos and uh, you know people uh, uh, you know any any oppressed group in the United States. If you have people, you have these rights, you have those rights, and then we're fighting over over jobs or what what you know I can pay you less than me, and so you know whatever all that stuff just puts a downward pressure on uh, on all of our standards of living, and you know the rich people go laughing all the way to the bank on yeah, fighting for scraps. Yeah, that's right. You no know, fighting so, for scraps. But when we're united, you know, black, white, brown. Uh, working class and other, you know, progressive peoples, there's nothing we can't accomplish. Exactly. I really believe that. Yeah. Um, so anyways, I went on a monologue there a no, little bit. No, <laughs> I'm glad you did, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, so then, okay, so let's, okay, so you had the, the panel, uh, did the, did your uh, delegation, uh, you know, what conclusions did you guys come up with? Uh, are there things that you were, um, as a as a group, you were trying to you know that that at the end of the trip. I mean, you mentioned uh, imperialism, but is there anything else you'd you know, or, or per, you know, if not as a group personally, things that you concluded or or were you know whatever life changing for you? Yeah, so definitely, like I learned about the importance of community and all the organizing that's done. You know, um, nothing can move without the community. You know, without the masses of the people. That's what I learned. Um, but I also learned something really interesting, which was that. I kind of touched on this earlier. It's that some of these demands that are so basic, you know, like legalization mm-hmm. for all, it's so simple. The fact that they haven't been granted, you know, made me realize, like, I feel like we're a step behind the the ruling class in this country. You know, the billionaires and their po- politicians who really run this country. Um, I feel like we needed to take it a step further, you know. And I looked at what the movement was doing and not only are they demanding equality and legalization, but they're also fighting for self-determination, which extends to the right to liberate themselves, right? And we talk about the liberation of the Southwest, the Chicano nation. That entails a different system. That entails socialism. That's what I learned. And so fighting for socialism alongside the, the, the fight for legalization for all, the right of all these things, you know, it keeps us one step ahead of the ruling class of the billionaires and the politicians in this country. And that's what I learned. You know, if we mm-hmm. truly want to achieve legalization for all, this system and this country has shown us that it will, it's not going to grant us that. At least it hasn't proven that yet. It's been 175 years since 1848. And there are still 12 million undocumented people in this country. I think that the immigrants' rights movement needs to take up the fight for socialism. And that's why uh, I'm so glad I'm here today, because <laughs> when capitalism burns, the workers must fan the flames. Oh, that and I truly believe that. <laughs> it's a slogan. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that aren't watching on video, that's a yeah. slogan on the poster behind us for May Day. Um, but no, that's wonderful. And, mm-hmm. and you mentioned 1848, just uh, to, to mm-hmm. say, um, you know, that was uh, the conclusion of the Mexican-American War, where mm-hmm. the United States annexed. Um, you know, whatever the uh, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, I might be missing some states here, Arizona, California. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, um, you know, I, so I mean, even like this thing we were talking about, a border, that all used to be part of Mexico, that all used to be part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I also want to raise up uh, something you're saying here. Uh, you're talking about uh, self determination, you're talking about power, really, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it seems to me. And, uh, 
you know, if the ruling class is, is if you're not part of it, then you're part of the people that are being ruled. And mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, the question of, uh, of self-determination often means that, you know, uh, a Chicano, uh, Mexicano people need to have power, but also have the ability to, uh, to, uh, you know, run their own governments mm-hmm. or whatever so that they're not being ruled, that they can rule themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I mean, I think that that's, that's interesting. Um, are there uh, uh, other things you wanted to raise about the trip uh, uh, that, that you think that were significant that uh, we, our Fight Back Radio listeners should know? Hmm, good question. Thank you for providing me the opportunity. Um, I'm thinking because there's just so much. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so much to happen on a trip. But um, I think it's important to really learn about the struggles of the people of the Chicano Nation of Aslan. You know, to really recognize the importance of those struggles at the forefront of all the work that we do. Um, and this goes the same token for the people of the South, the United States, the Black Belt South, um, Black people in the Black Belt. Um, all of these struggles, I think, like you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, they need to be at the forefront of our movement because if they're not, it's like a pedestal. You mm-hmm. know, like you mentioned, like an anchor yep. that, you know, we're not going to get anywhere without them. Yep. And so I think that's, that's one of the main takeaways, you know, just seeing it in person is different from reading about it. So it was really impactful. Well, let me let me pivot back then mm-hmm. to to Chicago here. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, I know uh, uh, you know you're 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 a senior in high school at a little village, Lawndale, and active in the fight back uh, uh, or organization there. But um, you know, we've had a, a couple of guests recently who have talked about the battle of uh, community control of police and the elections for district councils there. And I I know you were involved in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, could you talk a little bit about? Uh, you know why uh, a high school student in Little Village would, uh, you know, spend a, a lot of hours actually mm-hmm. knocking on doors and talking to people about voting in these district council elections for police. Could you t- what motivated you to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of dates back to that process of getting involved in the movement that I was talking about. Um, I remember eventually I started learning about the Black Panther Party and the impact and the influence that they had here in the city of Chicago, and that's when I learned about. Fred Hampton. Oh, yes. And it was just so inspiring to me because I saw this man and I'm like, he's so young. He was a leading member in the Black Panther Party and he fought relentlessly for socialism and black liberation. And that just, when I learned that, I couldn't get it out of my head, you know? And then I saw how he was killed because he was fighting for for these things. So the for our, our fight back radio listeners that don't know, Freddie Hampton was the the chairman of the Black Panther Party here in Illinois. Was murdered uh, by the police, mm. uh, and it was uh, um, there was uh, they said it was self defense, but it, it there was hundreds and hundreds of uh, bullets uh, going in. In fact, the Sable Museum they still have the door uh, with all the it's just riddled with bullets. You can go look at it. Uh, here in Chicago, but uh, he he was murdered is the bottom line. And uh, you're right, he was very young. I think he was 19 years old or 20. Or he was very young. Yeah. I forgot how old he was, but he was uh, not much older than you are. But yeah. it was, uh, um, but they were fighting for community control of the mm-hmm. police. Exactly you know, the same thing uh, you were doing. Yeah. You were knocking on those doors. <laughs> yeah, he was a uh, he was 21. I remember 21. 21 thank you. He was you. killed December 4th, 1969. And when I learned about that, I was like, people really got killed here for fighting for these things. Yep. You know, and um, in my head at the time, I was like, you know, we, we got we to gotta pick up pick up where they left off. Mm-hmm. You know, we got we to gotta fight for these things because the, the way I saw it, you know, the police, um, it wasn't just, it wasn't like a narrow issue. I saw it as connecting all the movements for justice mm-hmm. uh, in the city and around the country because any time that the people stand up and fight back for justice, the state, and the police are there to put them down. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. And so fighting for that basic right, I'm sure Pete, these listeners already know what community mm-hmm. control the police is, but fighting for the right to determine who polices the community and how the community is policed, um, I was like, this is fundamental. And so I got me and some of my friends from LVOHS Fight Back to um, organize ourselves and get out there and door knock. You know, it was the winter, it was snowing sometimes like a <laughs> blizzard, but we were out there knocking on doors and we got um, the candidate that we were backing elected in our district. Well, let me ask you about that. So you, mm-hmm. you went out and you knocked on all these doors. These elections are new too. Mm-hmm. So for uh, even people in Chicago, uh, 
often don't know what what is this or what can it do um you know it's uh uh you know we had anthony driver on a, a few uh you know, not that long ago i'd encourage uh people our, our listeners to go back and listen to that episode because he, he really breaks it down but what i want to ask you angel is uh when you you know what, what did you hear when you knocked on doors? What was your what, what what were you telling them you were promoting a candidate? But it would mean, probably you know there was a mayor's election, alderman election. People may have known about that, maybe not. Mm. But uh, uh, but this other thing you you were introducing them to it. And what, what kind of feedback did you get from the from your community yeah. as you knocked on the doors there? I'd say overall it was positive. It was mm. really positive feedback. You know, some were surprised that it wasn't a thing already. They were like, what? We don't have this already? Like, what, what do you mean asking for who we get, who the police is? Like, what? Or like, what do they do? Like, this, is a, this isn't a thing. And they were surprised. Um, so they were very supportive of it. Um, some were like, oh, hell yeah, let's do this. Or, you know. Um, but there was also uh, some people that were thinking that it meant that we were um, trying to get rid of the police or abolish the police completely. They were like, oh, we're not supporting this or whatever. But we had to explain to them that it wasn't a matter of making the police disappear. It was a matter of keeping them accountable for the things that they did and didn't do, Mm -hmm. you know, because the police, like we said, our communities are over-policed and under-protected. And I think that, you know, really enforced, like reiterating that reality that we live in to the people that we were knocking, um, it really got to them. They were like, you know what? This is what we need. And so... I mean, I think the support that I'm talking about really showed itself in the fact that our candidates got elected yeah. to the district council. And so, yeah. That, that's no, kind of it's, the it's, there's that's a movement there for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was uh, on International Women's Day. Uh, I was at the Freedom Road uh, International Women's Day program here in Chicago, and it was it was impressive. There was... Uh, you know, uh, you know, ten, can, you know, ten, actually, ten candidates. Uh, I think nine of them were black. That got were at the pro, were at the program that got up when they said, and uh, they were, and, and they were, and, uh, uh, nine of them were women as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it was like, wow, okay, this hey. is a, this is a not who the ruling class typically is. Go ahead, hey, shout out Kaisha Smith, <laughs> tenth <10th laughs> district council member. That's my person right there. Okay, yeah, that's what I shout All right. out. All right, Kaisha and. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yes, that, and that makes a difference. And, mm-hmm. and so it's the start. It's not community control of the police, but we're, we're stepping in that direction. Mm-hmm. And, and in these last elections also, uh, I mean, you flew back here for this. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a election uh, for mayor mm-hmm. uh, between uh, Paul Vallis, who had uh, um, you know, been the former uh, uh, chief of schools here, CEO of the Sco- mm-hmm. Chicago Public Schools, but he also was the architect of uh, wiping out public education mm-hmm. in uh, New Orleans, uh, and you know uh, he also did you know did things to hurt public education in Philadelphia, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and and Haiti, and so then he, you know he failed in all those places, and so now he came back here and wanted to be mayor, but he ran against <laughs> uh, uh, Brandon Johnson, who was a guest on uh, Fight Back Radio. And um, you were involved in that. Um, and how, how do you, you know, so Brandon Johnson will be uh, inaugurated uh, uh, May 15th uh, here in Chicago. How, how do you see that? How do you see those elections? And, um, mm-hmm. you know, what was your take on that? Yeah. So I think, first of all, that was a victory for the people. You know, that was a people's victory right there. They really propelled him up to the, up to the front and to winning the election through the movement. Because before then, he was relatively unknown. But on another note, um, I was born in 2005, and I was looking back at the history of the mayoral elections, and I saw that the last time there was an election that impactful, with a coalition that diverse and that strong, was in the 1980s with the Harold Washington campaign. Yep. You know, And so after learning that, it really put things into perspective, you know, and made me realize what possibilities were, were that, that the possibilities were endless, really. For, for this movement. And so I also looked at the history of the school that I now attend, Little Village Londo High School, and I saw that when Paul Vallis was the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools back in the late 90s, all the way to 2001, and the city was promised three high schools that I talked about earlier. I mm-hmm. went to one of them, Walter Payton College Prep. The only high school that wasn't built was the high school in Little Village. That was when Paul Vallis was CEO. Which is your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. which is my neighborhood school. And so he denied the community the school, um, even though they were promised it. 
They were promised the school. He denied it to them. And when the community organized and led a 19-day hunger strike to fight for the school, he denounced it as blackmail. Wow. Yeah, he didn't. He, that's what he was. That's how he was treating the community. He was laughing in their faces. He sent people to laugh in their faces. And it wasn't until he retired in 2001 that we were finally able to get the school built and have its door open in 2005, um, the same year I was born. <laughs> and so that's the history that he had with our school. Very dark history with our neighborhoods, you know, and even looking across the country, you know, he didn't want, you know, he didn't represent the interests of the people. He represented the interests of the corporations, of the rich, of the 1%. So it's like we promised you a high school, mm-hmm. brand new, shiny high school. We're not going to give it to you. And then the community, I mean, my mm-hmm. union, the Chicago Teachers Union was involved in it, the Pilsen mm-hmm. Alliance, others. I'm, I'm forgetting some. So, But all the, many people from the different communities who were involved in this you know, hunger strike mm-hmm. uh, to get the, the thing built. And he was sending people there to try to undercut them and, and do whatever. And then, now he wants to be our mayor. So, right. Uh. Right. And so it was like, it's like mind boggling, you know. And so when we, when we like fully grasped that point um, after the after the 28th and saw that Brandon and Paul were in the runoffs, um, you know, we couldn't take that. That's like, I, I, I mentioned this earlier, um, not in this podcast, but I mentioned it um, in my March. I was like, that's like if someone punched you in the face. And 20 years later, they came back and said, I'm going to punch you again. And you just let them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? That's and not happening. <laughs> exactly. And so we and LVO just fight back. We decided let's organize. You know, let's call for uh, a demonstration, a rally and a walkout, you know, to show the community and the city that we're not taking this. And so we we made a flyer. We contacted people who were there in the 2001 hunger strikes. Um all over the community, people who knew the dark history that Paul Battis had with our school. Um, we rallied pro abandoned supporters, organization, organizations such as the Chicago Alliance, um, Mientras Haya Amor Haya Esperanza, Mothers and Families United for Justice, um, Unete La Villita, um, also SDS at Chicago, um, at UIC. Mm-hmm. And we called for a walkout on the, on the 30th and we pulled it through. So all the students walked out of classes? Yeah, yeah. We had um, hundreds of students walk out, and around 100 rallied and marched with us. So we took the streets of the of the neighborhood. We went down Costner, which is the street that our school is on. And we actually stopped by an elementary school called Zapata. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, and we rallied with the young people there, too, as well. And they were, like, so supportive and so happy to see us. And finally, we uh, marched back to the, to the park nearby our school, Petrowski Park. And we gave out information on Paul Vallis and the dark history and Brandon Johnson. And then fast forward a week later to the April 4th election, and you see that there's a 30% increase in the youth vote from 18 to 24 years old. Well, let's see. You had something to do with that. Yeah. You be proud of yourself. <laughs> yeah, we had yeah. something to do with that. And, and youth, uh, the polls mm-hmm. here uh, show that youth overwhelmingly uh, voted for uh, Brandon Johnson. Mm-hmm. So well, let, me, let me ask you, though. So, okay, I mean, certainly... Uh, you know, given uh, Paul, you, you punched Paul Va- Paul Vallis back. <laughs> I think you gave you punched him in the face. Yeah. But um, uh, you know, what's your view of electoral politics? Mm-hmm. So, okay, you know, uh, is this our, our way forward? Uh, I mean, we just keep electing uh, uh, more. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, I know Brandon. He was on our show here, and uh, you know, like he worked in my union, so he's uh, somebody I, I'm, a, I'm familiar with. And uh, you know, I, I hope for good things for him. But my question to you is, uh, you know, do we just elect a whole bunch of uh, Brandon Johnsons? Is that uh, mm. what's been lacking the last uh, two hundred years, or what, what's yeah. our, what's our path to change here? What, what do you, mm-hmm. how do you view electoral politics? Yeah. Maybe is a that's real a, question. That's a good question. Um, so the way I view it, um, unlike most people who just immediately disregard it, I think there is some value in it. You know, especially if there's like um, some very valuable reform that affects black and brown working class people, or if there's a very big difference in the candidates in terms of where they stand. Do they stand with the oppressors or do they stand with the oppressed? You know, and Brandon, you know, he came out of the movement. He came out of the, he was a teacher, he was in the CTU. And so he came out of that movement. And as I mentioned earlier, it was that same movement that propelled him there, you know. And in my opinion, or this is actually just a fact, the movement brought him in, the movement could, has the power to take him out, you know. 
Um, but the way I see Brandon is he's an ally. You know, he's an ally to the movement. But overall, it's the masses of people who are going to be making history. It's the masses of people who brought him there. You know, it's the masses of people who are going to be demanding all these things that he claims to stand for. You know, um, and I think it was Heard Washington who said, you have to make me do what you want me to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I remember. He yeah. says that kind of thing often. Yeah. yeah so. And so that, that's that's the way I see it. You know, um, the, the people are going to be the ones moving this now. It's just more favorable terrain, more favorable conditions, if you might say. You know, that's the way I see it. No, I, I think that's perceptive. I really do. So um, uh, our, our time is starting to wind down where this has been, a, I've enjoyed this. I've learned a, a lot about a legalization for all. And just, uh, you know, for our fight back uh, listeners, uh, uh, we'll put in the show notes, uh, I know there's been some articles written about the trip. Mm-hmm. Um, the legalization for all trip to the border. Um, we'll put some of those articles into the show notes. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, and other, you know, some of the other organizations that, uh, Angel has mentioned here, we'll, we'll try to keep people contacting that. Um, but, uh, before we, we, we end, I want to ask, is there anything that we didn't mention here or anything that you want to underline before, uh, we end the interview? That's a really good question. So... Um, off the top of my head, from what I talked about earlier, I can't really think of anything specifically, but in the spirit of International Workers' Day and in the spirit of struggle, I'd like to make a call for action to everyone listening to this podcast or who may have just heard it for the first time, and that is to join the movement, join a revolutionary organization Root yourself in the working class. And if I may plug, because I'm a member of Freedom Road Socialist Organization myself, join Freedom Road Socialist Organization in the struggle for national liberation and for socialism for all oppressed and working people. Wow. Um, so uh, well, we'll put Freedom Road in the show notes, too. That's, that's a good way to end, uh, to end the interview. Uh, thank you, Angel, mm-hmm. so much for being our guest on uh, on Fight Back Radio, and thank everybody. Uh, you know, happy May Day to you. Um, it's uh, you know, hopefully uh, uh, you've you've been to a march or a program this mm-hmm. weekend. Uh, if not, um, go to one. Uh, you know, uh, May first is actually May Day uh, here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. If you're there, there's going to be a memorial at four thirty at the Haymarket Monument. Um, and, uh, I know we're dropping this after our big March. So, uh, <laughs> um, I know, uh, Angel and I will both have participated mm-hmm. in a successful, uh, May Day March, uh, um, you know, this, for this too. But, uh, um, just to say though, uh, uh, if you want to reach, uh, Fightback Radio, you can, uh, at richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. And we encourage people to, to send us you know, your comments on what we can do to make this better. I want to thank everybody. It's our one-year happy birthday Fight Back Radio. Hey, there we go. And, uh, uh, you know, thank you all for, uh, you know, for, for being with us through this whole time. Or if you joined us halfway through, we, we really, really appreciate that. And, um, you know, just to say, uh, um, you know, I want to thank our, our, our production team, uh, which is uh, Dodd McColgan, uh, Shane Tremley, um, Vince Olson, and now joining our team is going to be uh, Natalie. Uh, <laughs> he's always giving a claps no to uh, claps to. Yes, I'm going to kill Matt Natalie's last name. She's going to be mad at me though. No, go ahead. Uh, Natalie uh, Prenas. Uh, there you go. And so hopefully I got that right, Natalie. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, thank you all for uh, for your support for Fight Back Radio and for for Mady, I, I would suggest uh, why not. Um, you know, let people, you know, turn somebody else on to Fight Back Radio. That's a, a good a good act uh, to help build the movement. <laughs> yes. And, uh, uh, you know, this, this interview I just did with uh, Angel, other people should hear it as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, for our entire Fight Back Radio team, I'm Richard Berg saying until next time, all power to the people. All power to the people. Test, test. Okay, so we were talking about uh, Angel's cats, and uh, he said uh, he has a favorite, but he doesn't let them know about it. <laughs> Is that right, Angel? Yeah, that's, that's about right. You know, <laughs> I try to whisper around them. So, um, 
which one is your favorite? Now you can you can tell us. Nobody's listening. Oh man, uh, just may, maybe the oldest one, just because she's been around for the longest and I bonded with her the most. Shakira. Shakira is your favorite. Yeah, we we uh, I had her. I first met her when I was how old? Eight or seven years old. Yeah, she's been around for a while. I was in third grade. No, no, first grade. There you go. I was like six or seven. Yeah. Yeah, she's an OG. <laughs> okay, so uh, t- tell me about your cats again. Let's try again. I love my cats so much. They are the best cats I've ever had um, in my life. They're the only cats I've ever had in my life, but they're the best. <laughs> uh, and they're 10, 11, and 1 year old, respectively. They're really awesome. That's cool. That's cool. That's good. That's a good volume. That's good. Awesome, yeah. 